that time of the week again. It's flat out RC time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. I'll tell you what, Australia's a pretty wet place to be at the moment. Uh, hope that uh, all of you aren't subjected to any of the flooding that's happening in New South Wales. I was in the country today in Victoria, and and let's just say the rivers are full, the dams are full. And hopefully it doesn't continue to rain because I can't hold much more water, which means it's going to flow all over the place. So anyway, I hope you're doing well. We've um, got a really good episode this week. Uh, I say that every week, but because I think everyone's pretty good. Uh, but this week's extra special, we have a, a guest by the name of John Lord joining us. Bit of an engine guru, uh, but uh, stay tuned for that. But uh, before we get to John... Let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, what has been on my mind? Before we get to what has been on my mind, a bit of a shout out to a pilot. You know who you are that flies with my brother. I've got a few words to say to you. That is, what's on your mind? Anyway, having a bit of fun. The person who I'm referring to, he he, he knows who he is. Anyway, he'll know. He'll know. Uh, anyway, uh, first of all, I want to tell you about. I, I like promoting events. If anybody's got a good event coming up, please send me some information so I can promote it. I spoke to the guys at the Shepherd and Mammoth Scale Flying. There's some guys from the Wagga Club, Wagga Wagga, or as I like to call it, a Vaga Vaga. Um, they have a big uh, Warbird event. I think it's around Anzac Day every year, and I and they're trying to rebuild the numbers after COVID. So we're going to give that a plug as that comes comes closer to us because uh, it is a good event um, and historically it's been a good Warbird event. But speaking of Warbird events, the next event down in my neck of the woods in Victoria, because these guys did send me a copy of their flyer, was the uh, Warbirds... Oh, I can't read. What happens as you get older? You can't read as well. Um, Warbirds over Bansdale. It's at one of my favourite clubs, the Bansdale... Bad Mac. Bansdale and District Model Aero Club down in... Um, Gippsland Way in Victoria here. Those down here in, in Victoria know what I'm referring to, but they've got a big Warbirds Day coming on October the 29th and 30th. That is the weekend, the Melbourne Cup weekend, I call it. Oh, I can't go to this one. I keep on saying to Tony Wilson, who who the secretary there, I said, you keep on putting these events on, on long weekends. And normally at long weekends, I'm away with my family up at my holiday house. And so uh, that sort of takes precedent at the moment but anyway warbirds over bansdale does sound like a good event i know i've got plenty of friends that are, are already gearing up for it, building models and whatever uh mwa piles of course um look it is a warbird event but tony's pretty lenient um you know if you've got other planes you want to have a fly i'm sure that won't be a problem but uh bring your warbirds no matter what size they are biplanes monoplanes propeller jets if you've got turbine jets you can fly them there bansdale club is awesome it's um you can camp the field so they've got facilities for camping ten dollars per night if you are toilet and hot showers barbecue and fire pit they sit around the fire pit the people of bansdale you know what they do they talk about me that's a good sign that they're my friends so please keep it up uh disabled amenities if needed catering on site heavy model certificates required people do the right thing. Make sure you're turning up and doing the right thing. For more information, contact Tony. Well, I won't give his phone number out here, but uh, you can visit the um, Bensdale District Model Aero Club 
a web page or um, take a look at the Flat Out RC Facebook page because I will promote this event and you'll see the flyer. But 29th and 30th of October, the field will be open on the Friday to Tuesday. So if you want to come early for the weekend on the Friday and stay till Tuesday, they make it a long weekend. More than happy to. They love having people. It is a state field down there at the Bansdale Club. It's a VMAA state field uh, on 1125 Beng Worden Road, Goon Nua. There you go. But look, if you type in Bansdale District Model Aero Club into Google, you'll find it. So there you have it. That is uh, coming up. Oh, entry is $25 per pilot, which uh, goes to a good course. That includes complimentary breakfast on Sunday. Gee, free breakfast, 25 bucks. Goes to the club, health supports the club, develop the facilities there, which is always the good facilities down at Bansdale. A really nice um, strip, nice flying site, really good camping area, and they love seeing visitors. So get on down. Now, what has been on my mind is something I was thinking about today as I was driving back from the country. I've been up the country a fair bit, dodging potholes. Um, I hurt myself today. You know, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I've got lots of different hobbies, and generally I'm a bit crazy in, in ways i was going to go for a ride on my dirt bike i was all geared up it's out the front of the house warming the engine up and then it the ground's pretty uneven and it tipped over on the stand and turned the engine off no damage whatsoever not even a scratch um and went to lift it up and i've, I've pulled a muscle in my bicep or something's gone wrong at the bottom of my bicep there so i wasn't able to ride so very very disappointed but i was talking to my sister-in-law because my brother and his wife and family came up and, and we talk, I was talking about how good a hobby aero modelling is when you retire. Um, you know, I'm close to 49 years of age and very close, very, another another week or so. Um, send presents to Flat Out RC uh, for my birthday if you want. But uh, I was thinking, you know, there's, the way I see my life is there's, Certain times in my life when I'll be able to do certain things. So, for example, I can ride motorbikes now, but I'm not going to be able to ride motorbikes maybe in 20 years' time, 15 years' time even. Um, you know, I can go skiing now. Might not be able to go skiing as much in 15 or 20 years' time. But aero modelling is something that you can just keep on doing. And we often see elderly people retire from work, especially those that had busy lives, and then they, they just start to get old because they've got no hobbies. They've got no other interests outside of what was working. Then, you know, they either go and play golf, some people, you know, go and do different things. But I've never met a bored aero modeler, especially those that are retired. And and I can't wait to be retired. I've said this numerous times, I can't wait to be retired. But it is such a good hobby when you think about it. It keeps you physically active, socially active, and mentally active. I said to my sister-in-law, when I retire, I'll always have something to do. I would never be short of something to do. And I said, it's called model aeroplanes, whether it's going to the flying field and cutting the grass or going to the flying field and catching up with friends just to socialise, building a model, flying a model, attending events. Like I look forward to that day when you can just plan your calendar and say, okay, I'm going to go to this event this month, this event this month, and travel around when you're free to do that because you don't have the constraints of work and customers and mortgages and things like that. So... It's it's such a good hobby and it's something that I think we should promote as a good retirement hobby because of those things, all those things I mentioned, socially active, physically active, mentally active. And I think that if you do all that, you're going to stay vibrant and you're going to, you're going to have a, a pretty full life uh, compared to those that have nothing except watching television. I, I dare say any retired aero modelers, 
not is probably complaining they don't have enough time to do what they want to do with the hobby. So uh, let's promote it. Let, let's 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 promote it to to, to retirees because I think it's uh, it's such a good hobby, and I just can't wait to get out there when I'm retired, hang around with my mates, having a chit chat, talking about the good old days, reminiscing about all those experiences that we ha- we had over our lives. I'll tell you what, that's a good way to be. Time for my favourite part of the podcast, that is guest time. And this week's guest was great. Uh, it came as a recommendation from Tony Wilson, who I mentioned earlier uh, down at the Bansdale Club, who I uh, regularly have a chit-chat with. Hi, Tony. I know you're listening. Anyway, uh, John was introduced to me as an engine guru, a two-stroke engine guru. And it turns out that he has a long history in, in go-karting, in go-kart engines. Uh, and has always been an, an, an avid aero modeler. Surprisingly enough, he's a good mate of Cliff McIver, who was on uh, last week and the week before uh, in, on the podcast. But um, uh, John lives down in Painesville now, which is down in Gippsland Way, not far from the Bensdale Club. And uh, he's doing some good things with some of the local aero models and tuning their engines. And I thought, I'm always interested to interview people that might have a certain expertise. Now, as I said to John when I rang him up to invite him onto the podcast, I said, People may disagree with your theory about um, oh, my friend Dominic's trying to ring me. Uh, they might disagree with your theory on tuning engines, but it doesn't matter. We put the put it out there, and you just share your experience and your knowledge. Because as I said, this guy was a two-stroke engine guru, and so he does a bit of work to the carbies, and he's going to talk a bit about that. But the other interesting thing about uh, John is. He's, he was actually in a motorbike accident in his younger years and is in a wheelchair. So we talk a bit about that as well, about, you know, um, aeromodelling with a disability. But uh, he is an amazing guy. And you'll see how positive this this guy is. It's like nothing has slowed him down in his life, nor will it. So here is my chat with the one and only John Lord. I love it when I get uh, requests from the audience. Uh, what I mean is... a Request for guests. And this week's guest was a request. It came from Tony Wilson down at the Bansdale Club. And he said to me, you need to speak to John Lord. John Lord is a guru engine tuner. I said, perfect. I have to have him on. And we have him. John, welcome to the Flat Out RC podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you on board. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get into it. So always start with the first question uh, and my brother always has a go at me, oh, where did your aeromodelling journey begin? But that's the most logical place to start. So where did your aeromodelling journey begin? My aeromodelling began probably when I was about seven, eight. In 1965, I think, was probably the first time I started flying control line um, with a friend of mine who lived a couple of streets away. We just built our own models and started flying at a place called... Um, Oh, it was Wilhelmina Soccer Ground at the time. It was on Maroondah Highway in Croydon. They since after, they just had vacant land there, so we just used that. And I think it's now Maroondah High School. So we started flying around that of an evening and the people didn't seem to mind. So just, you know, stick trainers and little stunters and stuff. And we were very lucky. Very lucky in those days because there was a guy in Croydon by the name of Dick Steele who 
he used to supply fuel and parts and that and work from home along um, Mount Dandenong Road and everybody went to him. So he was a guru and would just build his stick trainers. They were cheap and, yeah, it was great fun. So you'd buy a kit or would you just buy a plan? How, what, what, what were well, well, a stick trainer is basically a bearer as a fuselage, like an engine bearer all the way and just a little wing, you know, glued to it and a tailplane and it was pretty basic. And we went from that into a few, you know, stunters and learned how to fly inverted and loops and all that sort of stuff. And and after a few years, we met up with another guy, local, bloke by the name of Ken Taylor, who at the time I think was the Australian um, control line stunt champion. And he showed us a lot and um, we used to fly with him a bit and he was a terrific guy. Um, and I've known him right up until he passed away about two years ago. So I was very lucky to have somebody mentoring the way we flew and whatever. And How did you come across these people, though? Like, was it through? Just how'd word you find of it? mouth through people in that area. There was a lot of people flying. Um, the Lilydale Club had just started up, and I think Ken Taylor had a bit to do with that. Um, you guessed you had on the other week. Cliff McIver had a bit to do with flying in those days as well. well he, he's and a good talking, mate of yours. Yeah, we're talking pixie radios and stuff like that, and I'm I'm flying control line and thinking, oh, geez, how good is this stuff? <laughs> yeah. 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 What engines were you running back then? I had Taipan 1.5s and I had Enya 30s, I think they were, 35s for the control line. So we got we got into the bigger stuff, you know, which was the, you know, aerobatic stuff, I suppose you call it. But um, I, I only done it for a short period of time because then I had other callings. I was playing football as well. I played for Ringwood right through my junior years and whatever, and I sort of had a bit of a a break from the planes and took that up and then straight after that I got into motorcycle racing. There you go, John. Yeah. It's, like I always say, we males, we get to a certain age and we get involved with cars and motorbikes and things like that. So what were you oh, racing? definitely. And I, I hadn't ridden a motorbike until I was 18 and I just happened to be going out with a girl I went to primary school with at the time and I didn't know her parents or anything, but apparently they owned a motorbike shop, so I got involved that way. And it was mainly vintage classic bikes. You know, I was riding Triumphs and BSAs and stuff. I raced a Triumph for about 10 years, raced all over Australia, Bathurst, and, you know, Winton was our club. And it was, it was great fun, but unfortunately I um, the, the, the marriage broke down a bit and I went my own way and that's when I was trail riding with my brothers and had a bit of an accident. So That is right. You did have a bit of an accident. We are going to talk a bit about it later, but uh, people may have met yeah. John, but uh, John's actually in a wheelchair. And um, But let's let's wait till later, right? We'll talk we'll, we'll talk a bit more detail because I do want to have a bit yeah, of a yeah. deep dive into, yeah, yeah. into your injury and that kind of stuff and, and how that impacts your era modelling. But anyway, so... Um, Okay, so so when did so when did you get back into well how did you get into back into aero modeling? Well, I, I probably I've always been in it, but because other things happened in my life, I just let it sit for a while. I always hung my planes up in the bedroom because I had two brothers, 
Um, we all shared the same room and, you know, I, I'd have to hang them up because I'd only get wrecked if they were in there. So I could always go back to those things. But um, I, yeah, look, I've always built planes. I've enjoyed it from a kid. I was a carpenter by trade when I, you know, went through my left tech school and whatever and um, done my apprenticeship and then didn't particularly like the trade. So I got out of it and started working on motorbikes and engines. So done a few extra courses at TAFE and stuff like that. and. Um, that's put me where I am today. We were having a chat the other day and we yep. got on to talking about, because we are going to have a, um, a deep dive into one of your specialties, which is engines and engine tuning. And so yep. you, what was, how did you get into, you, you talked to me the other day about okay. go-karts, right? So tell, tell us yep. the story about getting involved with go-karts and go-karts engines. Right. So as I just said, I was racing motorbikes. I'd, given up for a little while, had a, had a bit of a break, and I broke my back. And I'm laying in hospital and thinking, now what, I'd still love to race, what am I going to race? And someone mentioned go-karts. So I organised a a guy that I knew who was also in a wheelchair, and we went down to Oakley go-kart track, and something I liked to do. So I, I joined the club and started racing. So I'd come out of hospital in... Broke my back in January 1980. I came out of hospital in about June the 13th, and I think I was racing in about July. <laughs> so really? made a set of hand controls up. And in that time, I'd been playing basketball in a wheelchair with the hospital and done all that stuff as well. So, But I, I, I always felt that um, there was a lot of guys I met that were, you know, wheelchair basketballers, swimmers, and um tennis players and whatever and it wasn't my scene i wanted to be after coming out of motorcycle racing i wanted to you know just be accepted as i was so i started racing go-karts against you know able-bodied people and i enjoyed that a lot more so um that led to me getting a job with graham ritter engines who was a turbocharging guy but his two boys Michael and Greg were racing and um, I started helping him do their motors and um, learning as I was going. I was racing myself and um, after a while I left there and um, I got a phone call from a a very big company, a bloke by the name of Drew Price. And he manufactured Arrow go-karts and all the spare parts and he said, I want you to come and build motors for me. that last, I went. I was working for him for 15 years. Um, I, he basically sold me to his uncle, who was opening a retail outlet. So that was fine. I went there for a year or two, and after that, I went out on my own. So I'd always been building motors. Um, we run dynos and stuff like that, and you know, we um, there was a lots of people that wanted our assistant to race meetings so you'd help them out and hence the that's we used to um do go-karts um every second weekend or every weekend we'd be traveling all over the country we'd be taking spares spare engines for people and i'd be building them during the week and it just went on from there and um I ended up working for myself from home the last 15 years prior to me 
basically moving down here to Painesville because I was working that long hours trying to keep motors up to people and whatever and my health was deteriorating a bit with pressure problems and stuff like that. I ended up in hospital for six months at a time and so the doctor said, you've got to retire. So that came about in about 2010. And that stage, I'd had a couple of kids with a second marriage and um, they were into the football and they raced go-karts for a little while. And so I was always had my hand doing something. So. You haven't been sitting still at all, have you? No, but in between, I went back to Plains. I joined the Lilydale Club. I was in the Melbourne Club at one stage. I was taught to fly by Doug Dorrit from Flightline Hobbies in Ringwood, I think it was called. And... Um, he was the president of the club up at Mel up at Westburn, I think it is, the Melbourne Club. They had a little dam there and you could use float planes and so forth. One thing we haven't talked about is the models that you were flying, you know, over the years. Uh, you know, you, you talked about the control line stuff, but then, of course, you got into radio yeah. control like most of us uh, have. Uh, yeah. What well, kind of models were you, were you into? Well, because I was um, – Doug Dorrit was the um, guy taught me how to fly. He had the shop. He was selling pilot. I think it was a pilot trainer I had, and then we were, moved into MK. I had an MK Acromaster. I'd actually a 120 size. I put a Rossi 61 in it with a tuned pipe, and that was really nice to fly. Um, later on, put a 120 four-stroke in it, and that was just as nice. So I flew that for a long time. And then got out of it again, and um, I've only since um, since moving down here, I've actually been collecting vintage aerobatic planes. So I've built a a um, two meter Sophia, uh, one of um, Wolfgang Matt's planes. I've got an Arrow, you know, a lot of the early aerobatic planes, which are really nice to fly. Um, I don't fly them a lot, but they're more collectors than anything. Yeah. And you fly down to Bensdale now, don't you? The Bensdale. Yeah, I'm in the Bensdale Club. I just fly a little. I've got a little pulse, you know, with a seventy-four stroke in. I've got a few planes that I fly. I've got a PK Yak with a one twenty-five Sato that I've just finished. That flies very nice. I've got a Giles two hundred two with a two hundred OS four stroke in it. Really good. I tend to like the four strokes. Probably really? from the days of racing the motorbikes, yet I was a two-stroke mechanic. <laughs> I know. That's the funny thing. I was, I was just thinking that, that you really right. specialise in working on two-strokes, but you love the four-strokes. They do sound yeah, good, the four-strokes. They do, and I've, I've got a nice collection of them with the help from Cliff. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, I've got a lot of nice early um, aerobatic motors, like I've got a Hanno Special, you know, 61 OS and, a few things like that, a couple of supercharged YSs and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I don't – I'm not short of engines to put in planes. Yeah, that sounds like At it. At the moment I have – I think it's 14 planes I can fly with engines all set up. So, Well, you're a typical aero modeler. We've got plenty of aeroplanes, but yeah, we probably right. need. Yeah, well, I don't need any more, but I enjoy building them. I'm actually building a very nice plane at the moment, which is called a smoothie. XL from America, from oh, yeah. Balsa USA, and I'm putting a 200 OS four-stroke in that. That'll be nice. It'll take a 35. And I had a little 26C petrol, but I 
I don't want to be changing fuel all the time, so the methanol ones will do me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Okay, so uh, you know, you've been pretty active, and it sounds like you've been you know, like very busy active over the years, really busy. Because I know with the, with we you know we had a chat about the go karting because I, I raced go karts for a period of time. Yeah, and had it. I had an Arrow AX6 go kart. I bought a brand new. I brought it home. It was yep. nice and shiny, and it was a good go kart that actually. And uh, yeah, we were running, they were. We were running yeah. the Yamaha engines and the uh, the KT100. I think it was. Yeah, uh, that's it. Yep, with and, the Walbro Carby, and that's where all the Carby – that's what got me into doing carburetor kits for a few people in the model flying club yeah. because we're, I'd, I'd go and service people's engines while they're racing and help them out and whatever, and I might put in 20, 30 Carby kits for the day. And there's other engine tuners out there doing the same thing, the opposition or whatever you want to call them, and – you just go up to someone, you're all right, you're gearing right, you know, why don't you try this? And they said, oh, the carby's not working, I'll give it, pull it off, give it to me, <laughs> put a kit in it, set it up, give it back to them, away they go again. And that's all I've been doing in the model planes. I've just noticed that people never touch the carburetors. They're too scared to, I think, basically. <laughs> and what I have noticed even when I was working at Drew Price Engineering, you'd put a new Yamaha on a go kart or I blueprint it, you've always got to set the carburetor up. You could buy a new carburetor, it comes on the motor, but they're never touched by the factory. They just set them up as a basic thing and away you go. And when you're racing, that's not fast enough. You've got to set the carburetor. Um, we'll give you an example. They might have 20-pound blow pressure on the carburetor. We we set them at seven. So if you if you got 20 people are going past you down the straight and through the corners. So um, I've just applied the same theory onto the model plane stuff. Um, like for an example, I'd done one for Tony Wilson, a Spitfire he had, and it had 25-pound blast pressure. Now, what that tells me is that you're really only running on the high jet. So by lowering the blast pressure down to about 14, 15 pound, you're all of a sudden, you, you can now tune with the low jet as well. So it gives you a lot more tractability between throttling up and back again. So that's basically all I do is set the blow pressures a bit back to where I think they should be. And I, I'll tell them what settings roughly to do it or we'll tune it, whatever. And everyone seems to be pretty happy with it. So it is working. Um, the people that you try to explain why they're hard to start or whatever, it's usually because you're not using the low jet because the bar pressure is too high. Okay, so I'm going to slow you back yeah. down, right? I'm going to slow you down now because we're yeah. going to go step by step, right? So yep. you've given us a good summary of sort of what you what you focus on. So let's just take a backward step and say, okay, when it comes to tuning uh, a model engine, what is your aim? Yep. What what are you what are you aiming for? Well, with the petrol motor, especially, firstly, you've got to get it started right. So that's where the choke comes in on most of those. I've even had guys that have struggled to even start a model because the choke setup is not quite right on the motor, and you, you can't pull them off like a go kart. So you've got to 
try and get this thing started. I was, one example, there was a guy at Lilydale Club a few years back, a bloke by the name of Ron Schultz, and Ron was a pattern flyer and he had a big key car yak with a 58cc MVVS in it and it wouldn't start. He couldn't get fuel up to it, so I asked him to pull the carby off and I took it home and I looked at it and the choke had a big hole in it. It was a, a drilled hole about... Oh, probably about six or seven mil diameter. So what I basically done was just made up a new choke body, uh, a butterfly without a hole in it. And I put a little V in the bottom of it right near the, the little discharge jet for the low jet. And all of a sudden the thing would start, two turns of the prop and then away it would go and it's sucking fuel in, whereas the big hole stopped doing any of that and you couldn't put your finger over it because it's inside the cowl. So... That's been going very good ever since, and occasionally you might have to make a throttle, another throttle body up for the choke or something like that. But most of the time they're pretty good. You just set the blast pressure carburetor, and the biggest thing I find with modelers and petrol motors, and most people aren't aware of it, is the fact that the moment you get fuel on that diaphragm, it starts to deteriorate. So it'll go hard after about six months and just won't pump right and it's very hard to tune, it won't start properly. Um, so that's where I come in and I've been putting new diaphragms in them and setting the blow-off and away they go. They're happy. But Okay, so what's this, what's this blow-off pressure that you're the talking pop -off, about? Well, blow-off pressure, pop-off pressure, which is there's an inlet spring and a needle that stops the fuel coming in. And it's the spring that stops uh, is adjustable. You can either stretch it, you can cut it shorter or whatever. And, and I do it with a pop-off pressure gauge or a blow-off pressure gauge. And it's a little handheld gauge with a dial on it. And you can, as soon as the fuel pops off and starts to go into the motor, that's, that's what you call your pop-off pressure. There is lots of articles on the net about all that. There's a guy in America called Al Nunley that explains it very good. Um, it's something I read up all the time on how other people perceive how to do things. And bearing in mind, I've been working on 30 different manufactured carburetors in carting, like there's real fancy ones worth five and $600 each made in Europe and um, they're all billet, and, but they all run tilts and diaphragms or the Walbros, which are Yamaha. And they're all basically the same design, just different shapes and whatever, and different sizes. So I got my head around the carburetor side of things very easy and very quick. And it's not hard to set up. So once you get somebody's model plane set up and starting, they tend to start and go, but they've got to be aware that you've got to put a diaphragm kit in it every few months because the petrol will deteriorate, make the diaphragms very hard. Um, Tony Wilson, the guy you said before, his son, Darcy, had a big um, iMac plane and he pulled the carby off and I had a look at it and I didn't have any of that particular brand of carburetor kit because I think it was a DLE or something. They're a slightly different shape, same principle. So I just put it in boiling water for about half an hour. We just boiled the 
kettle at the club and soften the diaphragm up enough, get all the oil and that out of it. And I said, try it, but we still need to get some new diaphragms. And he's been using it ever since. So yeah. it has freed up for him and it's easier to start and he's quite happy with the way it's going. So I've heard some people say that, uh, I've heard of diaphragms going hard, but some people say that getting fuel through it can actually soften it up. Is that correct or not? Yes. It, well, yes and no, because depends which diaphragm it is and whatever. There's various types of um, materials they use. When you do the Walbro ones and you buy a genuine Walbro kit, they come with two types of metering diaphragm, which is a little square plate at the back. One's a grey, a brownie colour. It's called it made of mylar or something, mylar or something, mylar, yes. and that's for unleaded fuel. The other black one, which is identical, is generally for leaded fuel. Now it works either way, but I find the black one the best on the on the racetrack. The black one was much faster. It was a tenth or so quicker than anything else, and you're always looking for tenths in go karts. So we tended to use those, but but replace them more often. So the biggest problem I see is getting the right kits for the various engines. Where do you get, because, where do you get them from? Well, I, I tried to get um, Walbro ones. There's a company in America, but they won't sell outside America. So I found that the only way I could get a Walbro WL, which are the small 17 mil carbies or 16 half, I think they are, I could I bought you know a couple of dozen of those out of China, but they weren't always you know there was one there that had the diaphragm on back the front that wouldn't fit on the the carburetor at all, so I had to pull it apart. So there was a couple of little issues, but they seemed to work okay. Okay, so, yeah. so this work you yeah. do with for other on other people's engines, do they just send you the carby or the whole engine? No, look, I'm just doing it for people I know. I'm not trying to make a living out of it. Or anything, I've retired. I'm, I'm just enjoying my retirement, so I don't mind helping people. But if they've got questions or anything like that, I don't mind answering them and whatever and helping them out if I can. There's quite a few people in our local club here I've helped and they all seem to be happy enough with their equipment. Well, but it like is, that. you know, it's not something you can fix and it's fixed forever. It's going to start to, you know... Uh, get harder and the diaphragms will harden up over a period of time. And so you just got to be aware that you've got to keep replacing that. So my suggestion to people is if they're going to buy a new engine, and it'll be a DLE or whatever, at the time of buying the engine, buy two or three carby kits. And then you'll have a supply for a year or so. So, and we can always put those in, it's easy. But if, you, if you're chasing something like that in the country and you, you know, nothing comes from the country areas. It's got to come from one of the big cities and generally DLE, what's Queensland or something, and you know, Walbro I can get, some of them. Go-kart size stuff, which is the WB carburetor, which is the 25mm one, that, that goes on the big four-cylinder, uh, horizontal four-cylinder model plane engines, 250cc. They're the D WB. I can get those. They're quite easy to get because they're go-kart type. But the others, they're all very, they all vary slightly. So that's a big, that's the hardest part is getting the right ones. Right. How, com yeah. how complex is a model engine really? 
Yeah, a model aeroplane engine compared to, say, a go-kart engine is very simple. It's, you know, a single bearing crankshaft and whatever, and whereas a go-kart, they start to get very technical. They might be a rotary valve, reed valve. They've got rotary valves that are belt-driven off the side of the engine with pulleys and all sorts of stuff. So the model planes aren't quite that sophisticated, but they still a very, very good little engine. Most of them, they just go forever, so they're great. I've got a theory that they are very simple, and yeah. and sometimes people can overcomplicate things, like when people start talking about different types of fuel and stuff like that. From your experience, have you noticed any difference in running different grades of fuel or anything like that well, through these engines? I'm, I'm probably old school, and this is where I met Cliff McIver. Working for Drew Price Engineering, Cliff used to come in when he had the hobby store and buy Clots Oil. And we used to use Clots Oil with Shell M, a mixture of 40 to 60% um, Shell and 40% Clots, and that was our mix for go-kart fuel. And that was quite good for years and then all the fancy stuff come out, you know, your Penzoils and Penrites and all the BP stuff and they're all the synthetic stuff. I don't think it's any better for them. Um, I still use clots to this day in everything, uh, two strokes and four. Um, you can still buy it. So um, that's I, I just swear by it. I think it's a great oil to use. So. Um, I've never really deviated from it. The go-karting stuff we did, but, you know, for the planes, I find it fantastic. So. Yeah, I use the clots. Uh, clots is one of the oils I actually use. My 30cc yeah. oil clots. I bought it, stocked up on it, got a whole bunch of it. But, uh, okay, so so, so the, the, the thing for you is just that carby kit, making sure the diaphragm's okay, and then there's this blow-off yeah. pressure there's a couple of things I've come across that I would be wary of. Like I've noticed um, in the old days of carding, people say, oh, what carby settings? It's one and a half on the low and half on the high. That's your starting point. Well, a model airplane is completely different to that. And what's throwing everybody out a lot is that a Chinese copy of a Walbro has a finer thread on the jets. So... If your Walbro carb is one turn out, the Chinese one's probably two and a half turns because it's a much finer thread, so they have the same mixture. So people get a bit confused there, but you're better off just tuning it as you see it. And, um, I get people to, you know, hold it flat out, your high jet, and your transition from idle upwards is your low jet, and there is a transition period between the two jets where both work together. And that's where all the mixture comes in and it's quite easy to adjust. You're doing it by ear? I tend to do it by ear. Um, you're better off running a fraction richer always, especially on petrol. You don't want to be running too lean because they're only a low compression engine, a, a model aircraft engine on petrol. So it's a, it's not a go-kart engine where they're running 12 to 1 compression. So it's very easy to seize an engine like that. You probably won't seize a model aircraft engine, but you'll make it run lean and it'll go off and stop probably. I don't recall of ever seeing any seize, but um, you'll just make them stop in the air. So you're better off getting your mixture right. And 
The other thing you've got to be aware of as well, you're running a petrol engine. It's not like methanol. Methanol, you can run very rich. All you do is you just, the, the unburnt fuel goes through the pipe and it's it'll still run. Whereas a go-kart, um, a two, sorry, a petrol engine must have the mixture quite right because it will, um, it'll just won't run properly at all, especially if it's too rich. But what I've been noticing on a cold day, you've got to keep adjusting your mixture because if it's a very cold morning, you go out flying, you'll probably find you need to richen up the low jet. If you richen the high jet up, all you're going to do is make a four-stroke, so it's not going to go that well. But if you richen up your low jet, it'll be a lot better to use. And then you might go out in the afternoon and it's warmed up. Then you'll have to lean it back off because there's less air in the in the given area. So, you know, it's quite easy to work out. It was the same principle with karting, you know, like you go out in the go-kart, especially in the air-cooled engine, and you were richening up all the time because it was getting hotter and hotter. You can't do that in a plane, but you got to set it right to start with. Yeah, but, but it's not hard to work out. With the go-kart days, people, it was funny, like, you know, you'd have the, the, the carby right next to your right uh, yes, elbow. Yes, you can adjust that. I remember getting, um, I had extensions onto my, my carby yep. needles and you could uh, just turn them and, and especially on the warm-up laps, everybody's tuning everything up and you got smoke blowing yeah. back and, oh, those are the days. Yeah, well, that's right, yeah. And, and like, and then it started to get complicated because there was three jet carburetors coming out and they were quite hard to tune. Um, there was all these fancy jets, uh, carburetors coming out from Europe. And, you know, we're talking IBS and Hubschen carburetors from Germany. They, they're all similar, but they're all different. So people would then put this carby on for that race meeting and that carby on for this. And it, it just gets out of hand. It's, that's, that's, well, it's, it's, it's true. It has got out of hand. Do you ever think we'll see the day where we see electronic fuel injection into model plane engines? Uh, well, you pretty much got that with, well, not electronic, but, you know, your supercharged version of your four-strokes and that, they're a pretty, you know, good, smick, pretty machine-like. I wouldn't mind running something like that in a go-kart as 100cc. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's it probably not. I don't think, um, especially when you start talking petrol engines, but you've got to realise these petrol model aircraft engines, a 100cc engine on a model aircraft engine is about 12 horsepower, I think it is. 100cc on, on a go-kart engine is anything up to 30 horsepower. And a, um, a Clubman, like the one you used to run, they were 12 horsepower standard. We used to blueprint them and get 17 horsepower, and that's without porting them. You weren't allowed to touch the port. So... You know, line boring the crankcases, decking everything, getting it all square and true, strobing the electrics, modifying the carburetor to what the rules allowed us to do. And that's where all the horsepower came from and reliability as well. So, but um, that's what I've done for 35 years and um, <laughs> I'm pretty much over it. But <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you do anything for 35 years consistently, you're going to be over it. So, well, yeah, I, I didn't have a choice. You know, I, I, I would have liked to have run a motorcycle shop, but I couldn't ride my bikes anymore. So I had to get rid of those. And um, I just took up the karting because it was something that I could do against 
normal, you know, able-bodied people. So it was great. Let's just talk a bit about that because I, I did ask you before we got on air whether you're happy to talk about your disability. And, yeah, and yeah. The feeling that I get is you're quite quite comfortable with it. Um, and it, you said, you said, well, it's been a long time. Well, yeah, as I said, it's 42 years I've been in a wheelchair. I'm turned 70 next year. I was 26 when I broke my back. Um, but I was very lucky to be able to get in with a group of people that were playing basketball and stuff. And I'd done that for 12 months and I got in the Victorian basketball side and then we got picked to train with the Australian side and uh, myself and two other paraplegics um, pioneered the wheelchair tennis thing with, um, you know, uh, we started off um, going to Frankston Indoor Tennis Centre every day for a year. Oh, really? Just training. Yeah, a, a lot of work. Um, that was all right. We, we we done very well. We played the Americans and they beat us, but we did beat a set out of them. And um, that, the rules at that stage were that you could allow the, the ball to bounce twice and then you could serve it. And they were serving underarm. We said, oh, bugger this, we're going to serve overarm. So we devised a way of holding a racket behind our back and you know, we caught up quite well. Now we've got an Australian champion doing it, you know, and getting paid really good money. So. Yeah. When you when you first had the accident, you know, it, it must have been pretty tough on you, though. <laughs> yeah, but I was, it was a time of my life where my marriage had split up and whatever and, um, well, I don't know why. There was no, you know, she just wanted a break and, I broke my back in that time and unfortunately I was served with divorce papers while I was in hospital. So that sort of didn't go down real well. But it was the people around you, like around me, that sort of my brothers and my friends and there's a, you know, I've got a friend living in Bansdale. His wife was a nurse that looked after me in hospital and he's been a friend ever since. So you do, yeah, you your friends change and all that, and I've met some terrific people in modelling, um, but they just take me as I am. It's the way it is, you know. I've, you know, I've just recently bought myself a motorcycle trike, and um, I never thought I'd ever ride a motorbike again. So that's just taken me four years to get it all up and running, and by the time I got it here and whatever, and um, everything's kosher now. I've got my licence, and I can now ride it and. It's amazing. There's only a couple of them in the country, but uh, it turns a lot of heads. So, well, I had a look. It's basically a motorbike where you wheel your wheelchair into it. Yes, and lock. And I, my wheelchair's got a locking device. I lock into it, and I've um, got a seat belt and whatever. And it's all hand operated. It's 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 a, a manual BMW twelve hundred, and um, it's 80, 90 horsepower or something. And it's got a Ford Sierra diff in it, um, driving two car wheels on the back, and it's even got a reverse built into that so I can back out of car parks and whatever. But um, it's fantastic. Yeah, it means that I don't have to fold a wheelchair up just to go down the street to buy a bottle of milk or something like that and hop in the chair. And you know, That's the best part of it. So, What would you say to anyone that, like, I've got a, I've got a trail bike and, I'm, yeah. I'm, and I might be buying a road bike. Am I crazy? Or what? Oh, God, look, it's 
coming from me that I've broken my back, but my son wanted to buy a motorbike and I said no. And, um, you know, but yet I go and buy one. So I don't know. It, look, it's what I I honestly think the roads today are a lot harder to ride on than I when I was riding and racing in the early days in the 70s. There's a lot less people around. Um, I don't think I'd want to be learning on the road today, but I've had enough experience. I think I can, you know, I'm, the trike is more like a car, really. It's yeah, not it's a bike. Big. It doesn't fall over. It's, mm. it's just like, but I'm getting the wind in my hair again, so that's good. So you sound like you've been a pretty, pretty positive kind of guy, always had a positive outlook. Well, I've always, well, I've had to really. Um, I was a, quite a shy type of person when I was walking. I was, you know, always done the athletic thing and whatever, but since I've been in the wheelchair, I'm probably a bit more outspoken. It's opened me up a little bit more, but it, it's just the way it is. I, I spent a bit of time in England only a few years ago. I was one of my customers from go-karting gave me a, a quad bike to use around the pits because he seen me wheeling over the rocks and whatever. And when I got crook, it was great. I used it for 12 months or so. And when I got crook and I was put on the um, pension, I said to my mate that gave it to me, I'll give it back to you, you know, like I'm not using it. Thank you very much. And he said, no, 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 that's a done deal. And he said, i tell you what, sell it. We'll do something. What would you like to do? Well, me being out of motorbike, I said, oh, I'd love to go to the Isle of Man. Right, done. Mm. Let's do it. <laughs> and he organised one of these trikes for me to ride over there. So we'd done about 3,000 miles around Europe and England, Ireland, back to England and around the Isle of Man. It was fantastic. Right, so that, that got your hook. That's, that's how I got involved. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As you do. See, you're a true aero modeler. You're a tinkerer. You fall in love with something and that's it. You have to have it, don't you? Yeah, but I've always had the planes. I've been in and out of it quite a few times, but I've still got them again and um, I enjoy it. I probably enjoy the building more side than the flying. Really, yeah. I, I'm, there's guys that will go out every day if they could, but I'm quite happy. I've been building this smoothie. It's just about ready to be covered. It's only taken me a couple of months, but that's the first full build kit I've done for a long time. It's um, the last ones before that were the MK stuff when you could get them. But it's gone together very, very nice. Um, they've done a beautiful job. Probably not the cheapest way of building a plane, but uh, it's great fun. So it's coming up very nice. So. Yeah. What about when you're at the field in your wheelchair? Is it okay at most clubs that you go to you can get around? Look, if you're at the Shepherd and Mammoth Scar flying, you know, recently, yeah, I've been up there. Mud's I, a problem. I, I never flew there. I've been up to watch. Um, there's only one place I really struggled at, not flying, but at Lilydale Club. I used to fly up and down the strip, and I have I can't turn around while I've got a radio, you know, on my lap or whatever. So you can't let go of anything. So I learned how to fly up and down like a pattern flyer does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd do a split S one end and Immelman or whatever and all that stuff. But all the guys at the club, they're, they're flying behind me over the over Farmer's Paddock. And one particular day I was flying, I hear, look out. Well, I'm freaking out. I, I didn't know what was going on. So I ended up um, joining the Yarra Valley Club then, which was uh, the one up at um, 
we was about it. Yeah, really. Yeah, in the Yarra Valley, yeah. yeah. So that, that was a bit easier. But coming about- down to this club here, the, the people here are fantastic. Um, uh, country people seem to be just a bit friendlier in a lot of ways. Um, I've got a lot of good mates out of it, and people like Tony Wilson has been terrific. So they tend to, if I turn up at the club, you know, there's always someone who'll grab my wheelchair out of the car. Not that I expect that or wanted that, but that's just what they do. So that's been good. So there's people there that help all the time. But there's there's quite a few people in our club with disabilities here as well. There's a couple of people. There's there's a guy that that basically flies and he he struggles to walk but he's you know he's got some sort of disability and there's another guy that that's had um he's got parkinson's i think and he he can fly in five minute increments and whatever and he's quite happy to do that so i know a guy that um there's a guy that i met who used to come to an event that i used to organize an aerobatic event and uh i called him rocket rod the one arm bandit but he had one arm and he would yeah. fly radio control. And I said to him, how do you do it, Rod? And he showed me. And he basically has his his little finger and his thumb. His thumb's on on yeah. the, I think it was a Mode 2 flyer, actually. So I think he was flying the throttle with his thumb and then the, other, the little thing. Yeah. This guy could do knife-edge spins, like the best knife-edge yeah. spins you've ever seen in your life. It was just like his natural reaction to get the knife-edge spin. But he was doing aerobatics with the thing, and he was, he was great. I called him Rocket Rod yeah. because Look, he was just he was You awesome. just got to do it. It's like when I was racing go-karts. I had a guy come up to me, an ex-supercar driver, John Faulkner, and he was racing at the same time as me, and he actually hit the back of me and spun me into the fence at Oakley, and I was hanging off the fence. Oh, yeah, I've done that, yep. And, yeah, as we all do. <laughs> anyway, I was fine. Anyway, the next race, I went out and done the same to him. And he said, oh, I didn't know how to take you, but no. Nope. <laughs> he said, you're like the rest of us. So... It is what it is, you know. Your damage has already been done, so what do you got to lose? Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I yeah, remember having did. a big stack at uh, at uh, Oakley at the track there. That the, the first sweeper, you know. When you, you, oh yeah, and yeah. Cu- at night under lights, I came around the bend, and there was a guy that had spun and was facing the wrong way, right at the exit of the turn. Yep. And I think I I clipped him with my rear right. And car- carts were flying everywhere. And I remember I, my cart ran into sort of the tyres facing the wrong way and there yep. was a guy whose cart was just flipping end over end towards me and the last little flip at slow pace was towards me and I put my arm up just to stop it. Yeah, and I'm thinking, well, what happened then? <laughs> oh. I'd done something similar at Oakley. i come out of retirement in about 95, I think it was, and Drew's, I was working for Drew Price and I grabbed an engine and a reed or something, went out again and some bloke had spun right in front of me and I just T-boned him and it was on the blind corner near the canteen corner. Oh, and I, yeah. I broke two ribs. Anyway, I had to get lifted out of the, the cart and then I couldn't transfer into my chair and I thought, mm. oh, well, it's time to retire. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, you've had enough. So uh, I've from then on I've helped lots of other people and my kids were racing and, a lot of the supercar drivers and that as they come, Chaz Mostert and people like that, I've built motors for and they were good days, you know. You go out to cart meetings and they're just young people. I I met 
Scott McLaughlin was there and Jamie Wincup and Russell Ingalls used to race and all those sort of people. And they were just people you knew. And now they're all made in supercars and great. I reckon it's fantastic. A lot of them still, still ring me and, um, yeah, it's just the way it is. I've been on the track with a few of them. Of the few, the current V8 supercar crop, a lot of them raced Formula Ford, which is what I did. Yeah, that's right. Back in yeah. back in the year that I was going through, so you know the Nick Perkats of the uh, and stuff like yep. that. Um, you know, Todd Dale Hay- Woods, yes. another one. Was, yeah, Glenn Wonder. Todd <laughs> Hazelwood who ran into the back of me. Yeah. Gary Jacobson <laughs> ran into the back of me in practice. No, Todd Hazelwood yep. ran into me, passed me under yellows. Um, when he wasn't supposed yeah. to, Gary Jacobson ran the back of me, and uh... they're all people that that's their life. They wanted to do that. I I never really ever wanted to race cars. I always was on the motorcycle side of things, but because I broke my back, I couldn't do either. So the go karting was terrific, and I ended up making a living out of it. So it was great. But um, I still, you know, I still like the model planes. I've done a bit of fishing at one stage. Now, see, <laughs> another, gonna... that's another trait of an aero modeler is going fishing as well. I like fishing. Yeah, I, I moved down to Plainsville. I've had my boat out twice, you know, like I, I actually like trout fishing. So I used to go to Jindabong a lot and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I'll get there one day. It sounds like <laughs> but, you've done more than most able-bodied people, really. Yeah, well, it's you got to. you what do you do? Sit at home and vegetate. You know, if you don't give it a go, um, you know, I, I, I've got my machinery here still from the business I run. I've got my lathe and mill and stuff, and I can still do bits and pieces for other people as well and always making something or doing something. So, you know, you just do it. That's you know, true. I don't think that I'm in a wheelchair. I don't even – it doesn't sort of enter my head. If I, You find a way of doing things. Hmm. So, you know, like, yes, I can't stand up, but I can still get up the hill. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, how, Now, that's a question I've got for you. Yes. How strong is your upper body? Um, at, the, at, at 69 years old, not as good as it was <laughs> when I was 26. <laughs> yeah. But I can lift my weight and all that sort of thing. And in saying that too, I'm, I've been down here at Painsville four years, four and a half years. And when I first come down, I, I got on the NDIS and I had to get my house modified to be able to transfer onto the toilet and shower and stuff like that. And I actually had a heart operation while I was down here. I, for some reason, I had a heart murmur and I ended up having a heart valve repaired. So I had to get over that. That took me about six months. But all the people in the club were fantastic. They'd come and visit me and ask me if I needed anything and whatever. So, you, you know, it's all part of the big picture. The people are fantastic. So, you know, you just get on with life and they're always calling in. You all right? I haven't seen you for a few days. You know, they look after you and whatever. But that's just the way it is, you know. Like, I just get on with it and do my thing. And if I can help people, I will. I can't go out and mow the lawn, so I'll help them do their garbage. So I'll help somewhere I can. <laughs> That's true. You've got a great attitude, really. Uh, the, for anyone listening overseas, we have a scheme here in Australia called the NDIS, which is a National Disability Insurance Scheme. And and I've been, I've always thought it's a wonderful initiative. It, what are your thoughts on having a scheme like that? Well, if. I didn't have it because I was running a business. You can't get it. You have to be um, 
you know, like you don't get a lot of help while you're running a business. You can buy a new car without paying GST. That was about it. But when I got onto it, and I was basically retired at the time, it allowed me to move down here and buy another house, a bigger place. I was only living in a small place in Melbourne, um, brought up two kids and a wife and whatever, and, you know, we had a dog and whatever, no room for anyone to stay. Well, my house was a lot bigger down here, but it's so much easier. Um, The NDIS allows me to do that. It allows me to all my stuff that I need for wheelchairs and cushions and, you know, stuff that I need for my health and that, it's all paid for and it just makes life so much easier because it means that I can now pay bills, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, um, it's it makes life a lot easier for me at this stage too, so it's good. Yeah. Well, and I'm lucky too. I've got my two brothers down here. They both live at Nicholson, so um, I've always got help if I need it, but not that I have, but, you know, it's great to know that you've got relatives nearby as well. So and my two kids are, are in Melbourne and they've got partners, but they're ones at Officer, which is not too far away, so I can always visit easy enough. And, and of course, my, my youngest bloke, he's playing football and I went back to watch a couple of games, you know. I've got to go back to Melbourne again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. But I've always say I, I, it is. I'd love to live in the country. Like, you know, when I win the lotto, I'm moving to the country. There's nothing for me in Melbourne. I'll have my own private strip. How good is it out here? I can hop on the trike and I'm at the field in about 12 minutes. Oh, is it, see, that's perfect. That's what you want. That, it, it, it's not, uh, it's about 12 k's away. Yeah. Where, you know, like I was in the Lilydale Club and I lived in Kilsyth, but it still takes 15, 20 minutes to get there. Yeah, yeah. No, it takes me 45 minutes at best to get to yeah. my local club. And, and that's also going through traffic, so it always seems a bit longer. But, uh, but yeah, it's like I'm a member of a club down the Ballerine Peninsula because my mother-in-law lives down there. And, and I love going down there because it's like a – yeah, I think an eight-minute drive or something to the field, and it feels like yep. you can just duck. Oh, I'm just going to go to the club. Like literally, that's what I yeah, do at Christmas time. Right. I'm just going. I'm just going to the club. Whereas here in Melbourne, it's like okay, I've got a plan for it because I've got to drive yeah, all the way exactly. there. And whereas ooh, I bang my desk. Um, it's it, you know over there. It's uh, that's why I love the country. Actually, you know what I found out. The new MAAA secretary. I do have a house in the country. A holiday house up in the country. Um, yeah. And the new secretary of the MAAA actually lives down the road from my holiday house. She comes from quite a no, famous. So I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to give her a call and say she doesn't fly, but I, I'm going to say, look, can I just come to the farm and I'll uh, teach you how to fly a glider or something whilst we're there? And because uh, I, I need a local place to go flying, basically. But um, yeah, that that'd be perfect. Well, I've got the best of all the worlds here. It's been terrific because everything's nice and handy and there's a, a hobby store in town that sells a bit of stuff and it's easy to get everything so it's been great yeah it's, so, good, it's good neck of the woods actually down there yeah now tell me um what planes are on your bucket list to, to, to build have you got any <laughs> well, too long a list I've got, I, well the, the smoothie was the thing that i wanted it was the only one in the country at the time so i grabbed it and um, I think that'll be a nice just sports flyer. But um, I've got the pattern planes I can pick out any time. I've got a slingshot. I've got a Sophia. I've got an arrow. I've got a UFO. And 
they're just sitting on the shelves. I've got other things I can fly. I've got a trainer that I bring out occasionally. That was my son's trainer about 12 years ago. He learned how to fly, land, and take off in one day and never went back to it. <laughs> he he achieved everything. You know? What more do you need to do? <laughs> take off, land, fly, take off, fly around, and land. Yeah. That's it. Done. No, that's Next hobby. Not fun anymore, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah. you know, in our era, if something had an engine on it when I was a kid, there'd be a group of people around it. Oh, that's and true. That's, yeah, yeah. That's the difference, you know. I remember playing football at Mitcham and they used to have a car track in there, you know, with a tethered car on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was there only up until about 10 years ago. I, I haven't seen it since, but, you know, there's always someone rev, revving something around the little circle, so... All that sort of stuff were always interesting. Uh, it's something that I think about a bit, and, and you mentioned the word era, and I, and I was talking to some people at the Shepherd and Mammoth about this, that, you know, I always say if we were kids growing up today, what would we be doing? Well, I've got young kids, and we would probably be doing exactly what they're doing, which is utilising the internet, being on computers, because yep. we didn't We'd have probably them. probably the same, yeah, Exactly. And how good's the internet? I buy lots of stuff on the internet. <laughs> Look, do you know what I love about the internet? The access to information that we can become knowledgeable about oh, things yes, really definitely. quickly. And I definitely. love that. I'm investigating things and finding out more. Like I've got a head full of useless knowledge that a lot of people will say. But, yep. you know, it, but it, it, it is It's like is, when we were different. talking the other day and you said, What's that trike you got? And you, you Google it. Like, oh, how good is that? Yeah, yeah. So now I know and I can get a visual really quickly. And, you know, that's what I, I've mentioned this to my mum. She says, oh, kids nowadays, you know, the way they yeah. teach them and blah, blah, I said, you know what? If I was growing up and I was at school now, I would have been really good because I hated the research component where you had to go to a library and then oh, find yeah. the book and then you had to find the chapter, then you had to read the chapter, then you had to highlight it, then you had to write it down. That exercise of just trying to get that answer is now seconds away. Where it's, it's, and I hated that process, absolutely hated yep, it. Yep. Well, there's people in the modelling game that love it. They call it scale. Yeah. <laughs> They've got to do all that homework and go and take the photos and all the measurements. That's what we yeah. – That's what, like if you grew up in that era, that's what you know. But the thing is that times change, and I say this to my mum, my mum's turning 79 this year in a few months, and, and I say to her, you've got to understand that the world is always changing. Society is always changing. We don't talk the same. We don't dress the same as we do yeah, 50 years well. ago. We don't, you know, everything it keeps on progressing. And, you know, Elvis came out and they thought it was the work of the devil kind of thing. And and yeah. and then you look back and go, it really was nothing, wasn't it? And but it's we've exactly We've got everything at our disposal now. We can, if you, you've got a question, you don't have to ask somebody. You get on the internet and it'll answer it for you or you can... You know, I use a computer every night. I'm learning something, yeah. especially YouTube and stuff like that. You well, know, do you know what's interesting? One of my thoughts is people that think that the that people are missing out on building a model, for example, right? That their life must be terrible because they've never had the experience of building a model airplane. You know, even if they're an aero model, like a younger aero modeler, if you go, there's some young guys in my local flying club. And the last thing they would ever want to do is go and build a model aeroplane. Because you know what? Yeah. There's a thing called an ARF. Even then, they don't like building the ARF. For them, it's yeah, I, that's right. I can just go and yeah. fly. But people will look down and go, they're not getting the complete experience because they haven't built. And I say to those people, what a load of rubbish. I can't. Yeah. I, like, yeah. I don't enjoy building model planes, but I will when I'm older because I just can't afford 
the time at the well, moment to commit to it. And I was just thinking back when I moved into my house in Kilsyth, I thought, I'm getting back into model planes. I had nothing at the time. It was one of the hiatuses I had along the way. Yeah. And I thought, I'll build a model boat, one of these sailing ships, you know, the 17th oh, yeah. century thing. Yeah. It took me eight years. <laughs> I'd already built five planes in that time. It's I've still got it. I haven't finished it. I've got to put the anchors on it. But <laughs> <laughs> there'll be another eight years. Yeah, but it, it served a purpose. And I'd just come out of hospital as well, so I could sit at a table and do all that stuff. And but that, that's what you've got to do. You, you know, what does a disabled person do that does nothing? You know, like you can't do that. I've got another mate who's in a wheelchair down here, and um, I actually sold him a quad bike. And he seen me on the trike the other day, but he goes diving. You know, he's a scuba diver and he does all, you know, he does more stuff than I do. He's a bit younger than me, though. And, you know, I reckon it's great. I think there's a, there's a lot a lot of people in, like, in wheelchairs now that are, that are you know, there's a lot, I think there's a lot more support, even from a sporting perspective. Oh, you definitely. Know, I'm playing, yeah. um, I'm playing uh, table tennis. And the interesting thing about table tennis in, in Australia is, there is probably just as much importance put on the disabled athletes as the abled athletes. Like Definitely. when they talk about table tennis in a competition, they're side by side. It's just a different category, yep. like a different division. And it's it's just seen as one kind of thing, So, so which is great. Like I actually love watching the, the Paralympics. I, I actually think yep. there is some – it's – it's actually in some ways more enjoyable to 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 watch kind of thing, um, yeah, and yeah, amazing like athletes too. Like it would like some of the the the, the athletics, you know, the people that do the the, mar- yeah. the that lady that did the marathon. I just looked at her and went, "Oh, oh yeah, my definitely. god, that is a long way using your upper body pushing yourself fifty k." Definitely. Or something like that. Look, I, I started to get into that in the early days when I first broke my back, and we done a push from Bendigo to. To Ferntragalli Tech to raise money to go right. to the Stoke Mandeville Games in England, which is where the disabled Olympics were at the time. Yeah. And I there was three of us. So we'd done a third distance. And I went through three or four sets of gloves and about four sets of tires. And I think we got to about 100 kilometers an hour going down the Pendleton Hills oh, or really? something. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't me. I, I I always yearned to do that motor racing thing. So that's yeah. the reason I went into the cart side of things. There's something about engines, isn't it? Well, it is. And, and, and I've always tinkered with engines as well. And, you know, even at home, motor mowers and that. We used to pinch Dad's motor mower engine and put it in a billy cart and go up to the Croydon Drive-In. There's a bit of a go-kart track there and we'd rev the crap out of that thing for a couple of hours, go home, put it back on, and Dad always wondered why he could never get this thing started. <laughs> We'd worn it out, you know. <laughs> yeah. But that's what you've done. That's, that's, ex- that's exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, I'll tell you what. We've covered a lot of ground, and and we've talked a lot about things that are outside of aeromodeling modeling as well, which has been quite yeah, nice. And quite I, you know a lot what, quite a lot. <laughs> and you know what, a lot of people are going to enjoy this chat. It, it's been I've really enjoyed it, so I know a lot of other people will as well. And and I spoke to a lot of people at the Shepparton event that listen to the podcast, and, and they love them because they they sit in their shed. So hi to everybody that's sitting in your sheds, working on your planes, listening to John and I have a chat. So <laughs> appreciate you listening. Now, final question, John. It's a question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to, and. Uh, 
That question is, what has been your all-time favourite model? I would have to say the second, third motor plane I built, the MK Acromaster. It, it was such a nice plane to fly. It was easy to fly. I was confident flying it. And I was, I'd just learnt, you know, I was doing sort of half the aerobatic stuff back then, but I couldn't knife edge or anything like that, but it was a beautiful plane to fly. For some reason, I'd love to get another one. I've um, I've got very nice planes here that I can fly now, um, but that thing, for some reason, it had something about it. It was mm. covered in the uh, solar text, which I painted as well, and there was a lot of hand painting on it and that, and it came up very – I still got pictures of it, actually. It's a beautiful model. So I was always happy with the MK stuff. It was very nice to put together. There's a few around still you can get occasionally, but um, very good stuff it was. So that was my favourite by all, by all means. So well done. I sold it to a guy who flew it for another three or four years when I got out of one of the hiatuses. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's how it goes. Someone else enjoyed it, so it was good. Yeah. yeah. Well, John, it's been absolutely honour to have a chat with you and, and learn more about your story in aero modelling and life in general. And I tell you what, your positivity is infectious. And and, and um, keep up the good work. And I'll tell oh, you what, thank you. If I get this motorbike and I've got enough guts to come out and visit you on it, we'll go for a ride. You better, you better. We can go for a coffee somewhere or go out to the model club and have a fly or Imagine something. That. <laughs> and yeah. you've given me a goal to come all the way out to Bensdale on a motorbike and go for a ride with you. That's it. Excellent. Terrific. Thanks, John. All right, Andrew, thank you very much. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. A big thank you to John Lord. What a great story. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, you know, we delved. Uh, uh, I had a chat with him before the interview and asked him if, it, if he's comfortable talking about his um, his disability, and he said, "Yeah, no problem." And so I thought that it'd be interesting to share that story as a disabled era modeler and how how he's found the hobby and stuff like that. But the amazing thing is that nothing stops him, which is just inspirational as a positive guy. He has invited me to come and stay at his house, and I said I will probably take you up on that offer when I want to come down to Bairnsdale and have a fly. So. Um, Look forward to that. And it turns out that he was probably, I, I got into go-karting between about 90, 96 and 2000, I think it was. And uh, so he was probably running around the pits when I was when I was there. So um, I don't have a lot of memories around in that time period in my go-karting, but uh, except for going around the track and the incidents that I had, didn't win anything. I think I came second once in that club meeting. Anyway. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget the Bensdale Warbirds event is coming up at the end of October, uh, the Bensdale District Aeromodels Club, so stay tuned for that. And again, as I mentioned, if anybody's got any events they want me to help uh, push, send them through because I'm all about spreading the word. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the Instagram. Flat out RC, there is a new video out there from the Shepherd and Mammoth. If you didn't get down there, take a look at the video of what I could capture considering the poor weather. But anyway, a bit of fun. So I will be back next week. Not sure who I guess it's going to be. Hopefully I'll be back next week. If you listen to next week and there is a podcast episode, I've found a guest. Anyway, we'll talk soon.